We are in Luke chapter 15, and I appreciate your flexibility. We were going to be in Matthew chapter 18, and I just thought, man, I think this is a good follow-up to our first two sermons to, uh, to focus now on just the, the grace of God as we see it in, uh, in Luke chapter 15 here in the prodigal son. So that's where we're going to be. Uh, if you would, bow your heads with me, and let's, let's pray and give thanks to the Lord for this day and, uh, and for our time. God, we are truly thankful, um, God, that you have allowed us to get up this morning and be here, and it means that you've got something for us today, that you want us to be a faithful steward today of, of this time that you've provided for us, and to be faithful followers of Christ. And we're grateful for the food that you provided for us this morning, and the fellowship that you provided for us, and the word of God that we get to dive into. God, we're thankful that you have made yourself understandable and uh, revealed yourself in a way that we can read and, and apply to our lives, and especially as we turn to this passage, uh, Lord, that you've revealed yourself to us as a, a father who loves us. And so I pray that this, uh, this time would be profitable and fruitful for the glory of God and the, the exaltation of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. I don't know what, what comes to mind for you when you think about a father. Some of you had fathers growing up that were great dads, and they would play catch with you, and they would take you to ball games, and they would take you hiking and camping, and they loved your, your mom well, and they put food on the table for your family well, and they, they were just a good dad. I know others of you, though, in a room like this had dads that weren't that. They were absent. They were not there. They didn't take the time out to, to invest in you or your siblings. They neglected or even abused maybe your, your mom, maybe even you. You think of dad, and, and when you hear the term father, you have negative connotations that come to mind because of a, a sinful and fallen man that was your dad. But regardless of how you think of a father, what we have to come to terms with and what we have to ask ourselves, okay, what does this really mean, is the fact that God has chosen intentionally in the Bible, in the New Testament specifically, though it's also there in the Old Testament, to reveal himself to us as Father. And what does that mean? Because when we think of God as Father, we're not dealing with a fallen man who is sinful and self-centered and lazy at times. We're not even dealing with a, a good man who cares for his family well and, and takes you to the ball game and goes hiking and camping and, and, and everything else with you. We're dealing with a, a totally different paradigm when we think of God as Father. And Luke chapter 15 helps us come to terms a little bit with what that, that relationship, that role of God as Father really means for us. So take your Bibles, if you will, Luke 15, 11 and following. We're going to read most of it together and then we'll dive into uh, pulling it apart a little bit here. Starts out, Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me a share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the field to feed his pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. 
And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The parable begins with, with an unthinkable scenario. The son goes to the father, the younger of what we'll find in the parable of two sons, goes to his father and and asks him for his inheritance. Now, at the time, according to the law, here's what would happen. The younger son would have been entitled to a third of the father's estate. The older son would have been entitled to two-thirds of the father's estate. So this younger son is going to his dad, and and as Jesus is telling the story to the people that are gathered and listening He's explaining to them that the son goes to the father and says, Father, I, I want you to liquidate a third of your assets, and I want you to give me the profits. That's what's being asked here. And that's outrageous, and that's audacious. But, but what's more than that is what he's communicating about his relationship with the father here. Because what he's essentially saying to the father is, Okay, Dad, yeah, this has been great and all growing up here and you've provided and you've done all these things for me and everything else, but I, I'm really done with you now. I'm done with you. I'm done with my older brother. I'm done with the family. I'm done with the estate. I'm done with the future. I'm done. I'm done with all of this stuff. I want you to, again, liquidate a third of everything that you have. Give it to me because that's what's mine by law and then I'm, I'm gone. Well, the father... In, in this situation, reacts probably in a way that you and I wouldn't react. I mean, think about how you would respond if this was your kid. Hey, Dad, I, I want you to cash in a third of your 401k. And, and also, I'd like you to go ahead and sell the house. You and Mom have been talking about downsizing. and uh, So go ahead and sell the house. I want a third of the house. And you guys can go do whatever you're going to do. I, I, I don't really care about that. And uh, I'm, I'm gone, by the way. I'm going to take my portion of whatever you were going to give me after you die, and I'm, I'm out of here. You and I have nothing to do with each other anymore. What, what would your response be? Maybe you would flip the ter- tables and say, you want to disown me? No, 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 no. I'm going to disown you now. you got nothing coming to you. Or maybe you would just laugh and say, no. Or maybe you would get angry at the sun. Or maybe just you, out of a hurt and a brokenness, just turn on your heel without a word and walk away from the sun. But my guess is most of us wouldn't do what the Father does in the parable. Jesus says right there in verse 12, and he divided his property between them. So the Father cashes it in, gives this impetuous, rude disrespectful, dishonoring son, a third of everything he owns, and sends him on his way. See, the son wanted to go and and live life. The son wanted to get out from underneath the the watchful eye of his father. The son wanted to, to get away from the traditions and the regulations and the rules that he had grown up with. The son wanted to, to go and, and, and see what it was like to just enjoy things and live life to its fullest, if you will. And there's a lot of times where we 
have the same mindset when it comes to God and the rules and the regulations and the commandments that God has placed over our lives. And and we want to run a little bit. We want to exercise some freedom. We want to get some distance from what God has called us to. And a lot of times, not every time, but a lot of times, just like the, the prodigal's father, our heavenly father will actually let us run a little bit as he exercises a patience towards us. But what I want us to see here is that this father's patience is not without purpose. This father's patience is not passive. This father's patience is not just, well, hopefully he comes to his senses, I'm going to let him go. No, there is great purpose to the patience that the father shows his son. By not flying off the handle, not just flat out rejecting him, not saying forget it, I'm not doing that, not saying how dare you, not any of that. No, by simply saying, okay, dividing the, the, the property and giving the son what he had asked for and sending him on his way. Our first point this morning is this, recognize the intent of the father's patience. Recognize the intent of the father's patience because our heavenly father demonstrates a patience towards us as well that is also with a purpose, with an intention. If you had kids who, growing up, went out and experienced their first fall fest, and they came back, and they had their buckets full of candy, and the next day they said, hey, Dad, can we just eat candy all day? Maybe you think, well, this is a good opportunity to teach them a lesson. So you say, sure. So there's the excitement in the morning when they're opening up the Sour Patch Kids and the Snicker Bars and the everything else, and they're like, I can't believe we get to have candy all day. This is so great. And they're eating it, and they're just loving it. And then... Lunchtime comes and they're kind of excited about the candy. And then dinner time comes and they don't want to see an ounce of sugar for the rest of their life, do they? See, you were patient in a situation that you knew, hey, you're going to run after this. And really, this is not the best thing for you to do. This is not a wise decision for you to make. But I'm going to let you figure out on your own that this is a foolish choice. And so your patience is being extended, but it's not without a purpose. The Apostle Paul says God is patient towards us for a particular purpose. He says, do you presume upon, Romans 2, 4, do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that his kindness is meant to, notice the language there, that his kindness, his patience towards you has a purpose, that it's meant to lead you to repentance. So there's option one for the purpose of God's patience is it leads us to repentance. We come to the end of ourselves. We come to realize, oh man, sugar's not good for me to eat all day long because it makes me sick, right? And then we repent from that and say, I'm done with that. I'm not going to do that anymore, and we return. That's one option for God's patience. But the second option is there in verse 5 when he says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. See, sometimes God's patience is a patience of of judgment, where those that are not willing to humble themselves and return and admit they were wrong and confess their wrongdoing and confess their sin and cast themselves on the mercy of the Father, at at that point in time, the reason that God has not wiped them off the face of the earth is not because he doesn't care, but his patience in that moment is he's storing up his wrath for the time that he's going to ultimately reveal it. But for so many of his children, God will allow them to wander in order that they might be brought to the place of recognizing that he is better than anything else this world might offer us. And that's what the father's doing with the prodigal here. Look back in our text in verse 13. 
says this, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. And so the son gets his inheritance and takes everything and it, it goes, it says, the son in this text, he says, goes to a, a far country. I want you to notice the language of separation that Jesus is using in telling this story. It says, the son goes to a far country. And then look at verse 14. A severe famine arose in that country. Verse 15. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. Jesus is painting the picture with this story of us realizing that the son's actions have created a chasm between him and the father. A distance that is not a mere, hey, I'm going to go down the road and see what's going on in the town next door. No, I'm going to go to a different country. I'm going to go to a far country. He's he's no longer in this land. He's in that land. And so often when we pursue our sinful inclinations and desires, that's what's happening to us. Certainly as, as we are apart from God, apart from Christ, We are aliens and strangers, right? We are separated from him. We need reconciliation. We need to be brought near to the Lord. But even, men, as as believers, when we pursue sin and chase sin, there's a distance that we feel between us and the Lord, between our relationship that was once so close with the Lord. Now that we feel it, it, there's a distance and a dryness and a sterility about our relationship with God because we have, have drifted from where he wants us. And so the son gathers everything and goes to this far country, the Vegas of this time, and it says he squandered everything in reckless living. In the Greek, it's redundant. He wasted everything in wasteful living is what it means there. He loses everything. And that's so true of of sin. It will woo us and then it will leave us. The son pursues all these things that seem so satisfying. And we can so often look at something that the Lord says, this is not for you, this is not what I want for you to do, and look at it and say, yes, but it it looks so satisfying. And we chase it and we pursue it, and what we've realized is we, on the, the altar of immediate gratification, we end up sacrificing our dignity and our sanctification and our joy and our spiritual intimacy with the Father. And the son has has done just that with everything that his father had given him. Man, we've talked about the concept of stewardship before. That God has given us everything that we have, and I I wonder how much of it have we wasted in wasteful living. We'll look back at verse 14, because the author wants to drive home the desperation of the son's plight. When he had spent everything, he's got nothing left, not even two dimes to rub together. A severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. That's an understatement there, right? So it's it's one thing to, to not have a penny to your name. That's hard enough, yes? But then on top of that, in an agrarian society, in an agrarian culture where they don't have Ralph's down the road, there's no soup kitchen, so there's no homeless shelters, on top of that, now there's a famine that strikes the land. See, God is, is piling the desperation one layer on top of the other for where this son is. 
And it says in the text, he began to be in need. Verse 15, so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. Remember Jesus' original audience for this. He was speaking to a group of what, what type of people? Jews, yes? How many of them do you think had a farm with pigs on them? None of them, right? Again, this is Jesus piling the desperation of the son's plight one layer on top of another. He goes out and hires himself out to a Gentile. And that Gentile says, yeah, I'll, I'll give you a job. I've got pigs in my back fields. They need to be fed. Go out and feed them. And the son's desperation, and at this point in time, his hard-heartedness, is so bad that he's willing to go and be degraded and defiled to the extent of stepping into the pig pen and feeding one of the most detestable animals the Jewish people knew of. Imagine the original audience listening to Jesus tell the story at this point in time, thinking to themselves, what is going on? What is going on? In fact, he even says, look, I, I would eat the pods the pigs are eating but it says no one gave him anything in fact in the, the greek that word no one is at the beginning of verse 16 there it's emphatic in the position why again because jesus wanted everybody to understand his desperation he put it all on himself and himself was all he had left no one was there to help him. No one was going to give him a free handout. No one was around. No family, no friends. All the friends that maybe he had when he first showed up with all of his money, they're gone now because he's got nothing left. He's in the pig pen. He's got nothing. He is desperate upon desperate upon desperate. And man, isn't that the world and what the world will do to us when we think that the world is going to satisfy us? We go after the things that the world holds out to us and says, this will satisfy you. But here's the reality. The world will abandon you as quickly as it will woo you. And God's patience towards us, like we're talking about this purpose, this intention, is so often with the intention and the purpose that he will lead us to the point of misery and despair so that we will come to the realization that we need him. We studied that in the book of Ecclesiastes, didn't we? Remember when King Solomon said this? I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven, and it is an unhappy business. It's a miserable thing. It's depressing and discouraging what God has given to the children of man to be busy with. What is that? The pursuit of anything that will satisfy us under the sun. And so God has given us this sense of you're never going to be satisfied under the sun. You're always going to be let down. You're always going to be discouraged. The world will always kick you and beat you and then kick you again while you're down. And if that's where your hope is, you're going to end up in the pig pen, in the midst of a famine, wanting to eat the pods that the pigs are eating next to you. Because that's basically what the world has to offer you. Sometimes the Father's patience is meant to lead us to rock bottom so that we'll recognize our need for him. In fact, that's what Peter says, right? 2 Peter 3, 9. People are saying, where is this Jesus 
This one that you talk about coming back, where is he? Why hasn't he come back yet? Well, Peter says, hey, listen, the Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some of you might count slowness, but he's patient towards you with a purpose, not wishing that any should perish, perish, but that all should reach repentance. Man, I wonder if any of you in the room tonight have been, or this morning have been missing the purpose of God's patience in your life. Maybe some of you in the room aren't believers. You're still in the pig pen. And God has been patient towards you. And for whatever reason, you're here this morning. And God right now is impressing upon you, look, look around. Look at what your life has amounted to. Look at what all the things you put your hope and trust in have done for you. What have you gained from it all? And his patience tonight is calling you to repent and put your faith and trust, or this morning to, to, to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Others of you, you are, you are in Christ, but you have drifted to that or towards that far country in pursuing sinful things. And maybe in God's patience towards you, what your mind is thinking is, well, maybe this thing, this sin, isn't that big of a deal. Maybe God's just too busy to notice what's going on over here with this sin. He must not care about it that much, otherwise he would stop me. Well, maybe, men, or maybe that in love he's letting you chase this to bring you to rock bottom so that you'll realize, oh man, what am I doing? What am I doing? Let me plead with you, if that's you, men, don't wait to hit rock bottom. You know, if you are in Christ, you've got the spirit of God dwelling within you. Maybe you've been suppressing that spirit. You've been quenching that spirit, but man, you know where sin leads. So leave it off before you get there. Leave it off before you hit rock bottom. That's where the sun is, in the pig pen, away from his family, away from everything else, wishing he could eat pig food. Look at verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? Now the hired servant, don't think somebody that's got like the servant's quarters on the father's property. The hired servant, these are the day laborers. These are the guys when the, the, the father jumps in his F-150 and drives down the, to the, the, the city block a couple ways and rolls down the window and says, hey, I need five of you guys because I've got a project this week. That's what we're talking about here. This is the hired servant. This is outside of the family structure. This is outside of the, the, the father's household. The son's going, maybe I will be included in the, the day laborers. Why? Well, because even they are provided with bread to eat, something the son didn't have. But I, he says in verse 17, I perish here with hunger. He knows his state of desperation. He knows that it's life and death. I perish here with hunger. So I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Man, think of how hard that would have been. That decision. To get up and go and to think to yourself, man, how can I go back? How can I show my face there again? After what I said to him, after what I did, after forcing him to cash in a third of his estate, and, I, and I've got nothing to show for it. I've got literally nothing to show for it. It's gone. All of the hard work that my dad did to, 
to take care of us, and then I just wasted it. How can I go back there? Or how can I go back there? I've got this older brother that's always kind of been the goody two-shoes of the family, and he's been doing things right, and what's he going to think when I come back? And maybe even thought of it, are, not only are they going to welcome me or, or even allow me to be a higher servant, are they going to want to kill me? Like, what? What I've done is unforgivable. I can't go back. There's no kind of love that would forgive me for what I've done to them. But the state of desperation is such that he realizes it's his only shot, it's his only chance, it's his only choice. And so he begins to rehearse and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. The son's ready to go back, and he knows he has to go back with hat in hand, without blame shifting, without rationalization, without justification. He has to go back and own completely the sinfulness of his sin, the depth of his depravity, the extent of his desperation. To go back with no merit of his own, no worth of his own, nothing that would make him attractive to his father. Everything that would make his father want nothing to do with him. He has to go back and he has to confess that before the father and cast himself entirely on the mercy of his father. By the way, man, this is what true repentance looks like. True repentance is not blame shifting. It's not excusing. It's not justifying. It's not saying, well, I did this, but here's why. True repentance names our sin, owns our guilt, and casts our fate on the mercy of our God. And so the son gets up and he goes home. And you can imagine on the way home, if I can read between the lines, he's got to be just rehearsing this speech that he's come up with. Put yourself in his shoes thinking about, okay, what should I say? How should this come across? How can I really express my contrition and my sorrow and my brokenness over this? I don't want to be flippant about this. I want to make sure that I'm not presumptuous. I don't want to saunter back acting like I'm, ex- I'm owed anything. I know I'm not owed anything. What should I say? How should I go about this? What do I need to confess? I need to get it all on the table. And he goes back. And as he comes back and gets within sight of his father's property, we find the unexpected. I mean, here's where we have to disengage from the rest of the story. We know the rest of the story, but remember the, the, the preaching event where this took place originally. Jesus' audience didn't know the rest of the story. They're still trying to get over the pig pen. And they're listening to Jesus and they're thinking to themselves, okay, the son's coming back. Here comes the justice from the father, Right? Here comes the, the, the righteous indignation. This guy's made himself like one of a, the, the Gentiles. This is where this rabbi, this is where Jesus is going to, he's going to preach upon the, the greatness of Israel and the goodness of God and the holiness and the justice and the righteousness and the, 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 the pride that we should feel being good Jewish people. That's what they're maybe expecting. They're not expecting what Jesus says and we shouldn't expect what Jesus says. Look at verse 20. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. 
And the son said to his father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and, against, and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Again, to read between the lines a little bit here. If the son was still a long way off when the father saw him, man, what does that imply but that the father was looking for him, waiting for him? Right, the, the son's going back and he's expecting to get to the edge of his father's property and meet one of the servants, perhaps. Maybe even one of the day laborers. Say, hey, I, I'm, I, this is who I am. Maybe you don't know me. You probably don't recognize me. I've, I've, you have no idea what I've been through. I, I need to speak to the master of the, the house. Or maybe he's expecting he'll run into his older brother. And the judgmental look from his older brother who will look at him and say, what are you doing back? We've got nothing to do with you. You left, you made your bed, now go lie in it. Or maybe he's expecting to come back and make his way to the father only to find the father standing there with his arms crossed. And an I told you so look on his face. Ready to lecture the son, ready to berate the son and then turn him back away. So often, men, when we think about returning to the Lord in repentance, we think about those responses and those reactions, don't we? Even as believers and followers of Jesus who've been forgiven at the cross, we still struggle to comprehend the measure of love shown from the Father to the Son in this parable. He sees him looking for him. He feels compassion for him, it says in the text. His heart goes out to him. He's not angry. He's not disappointed. He's not judgmental. He's not, I told you so. He's not prideful. He's not wrathful. He's not vindictive. Right? The, the father could have been all of those things and justified in being all of those things. But he was none of those things. He is compassionate towards the son. He runs to the son. The father humbles himself to go to the son. He doesn't wait back sitting on his chair to wait for the son in abject humility and filth to come up to his presence. But no, the father sees him, feels compassion, and runs to the son. And then not only that, but he embraces him and kisses him. Now the son has been hanging out in the pig pen for who knows how long. His old spice is not smelling too good anymore. It's worn off a long time ago. And the father, in the midst of his filth, hugs him and kisses him as his child. Again, the father in this parable is meant to represent who, men? Our heavenly father. Do you think about your heavenly father's response to your repentance the way that we see the father in this parable respond to the repentance of the prodigal son? What is your conception of God as father, men? I think this identity of God is probably one of the most difficult ones for us to come to terms with as men. I think it's because we've had fathers that failed us and we as fathers have failed our children. And so to, to conceive of a perfect God, holy God, 
who we read about in the scriptures and we read passages in Hebrews where it says it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the angry God and we think to ourselves, yes, that's God towards my sin and that's how he responds. When I come back in repentance, there's this, there's this frustration, there's this exhaustion with me, there's this, I don't want to deal with you anymore and there's this, okay, fine, here's some more grace, but don't you dare come back here again. And, and, and that's the perspective that we have. And yet what Jesus is showing us, man, is not only is this the, the father with the prodigal who's lost and now saved, but man, this would have been the father's response with the older brother if the older brother had repented when the older brother was prideful and arrogant even though he was still within the father's household. Man, this is God's response to you when you come back to him in repentance and confess your sin and own your sin and don't try to justify your sin. The father will embrace you and welcome you and love you with a love that we struggle to be able to comprehend. Our second point this morning is be amazed by the Father's love for you. Be amazed by the Father's love for you because this parable is for you. Not just when you were lost and now you're saved. But that Father's love continues. In fact, that's the whole point of Romans chapter 5, the first part of it. Paul says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were what? While we were still sinners, while we were in the far country, while we were in that country, not this one, while we were in the pig pen, while we were covered in the filth, in the muck of our sin, in our rebellion, in our rejection, that's when Christ died for us. That love, God shows his love for us that much. And then Paul goes on to say, man, you know what, man? If he loved you that much then, how much more is he gonna love you now and make sure that he brings you home to be with him? The Father's love for you is not lessening from your moment of conversion. It's, it's this magnitude of, of love that we continue to recognize more and more and more and more of along the way. And his grace and his forgiveness and his willing to accept you in and bring you in is inexhaustible. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave, he sacrificed, he killed his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 1 John 4, 10, for this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. To be the one that removes our guilt. Well how did he do that? By the blood of his cross is what the apostle Paul would say. The overwhelming, the unending, the inexhaustible, the unmerited love of God. And that is how he responds to you men. Even today when you come back to him in repentance. The way the son comes back to the father and you say, Father, look, here's my sin. I'm going to lay it out for you. I'm not going to justify it. I'm not going to blame somebody else. This isn't anybody else's problem. This is my problem, my guilt. I own it and I'm asking you to forgive me. The response that you'll get from the father is not one of arms folded going, well, it's about time. It's the prodigal father, prodigal's father coming to you, embracing you, loving you with a love that is incomprehensible, forgiving you, restoring you, welcoming you back home. So, man, I, I hope, I pray that 
you will begin to cultivate more of an understanding of this type of God that we serve. And that you will be more quick to repent and come back because that is what he desires. He's not the angry, disappointed, wrathful father. Why? Why, why, why is he not? Right? Because our sin deserves that. This prodigal deserved that. And this is where we see hidden in the, the layers of the story of the prodigal son, this is where the cross comes into play, yes? Because the reason that God is not the disappointed, angry, wrathful father, even now today with you when you sin today, is because that wrath has been exhausted where? At the cross. And so now, because of that, he wants to bring you back in and say, look, your sin has been paid for. Your guilt has been atoned for. I want to bring you home to rejoin the family. The son can't help but still go through the speech, and it's kind of a, a funny scene if you think about it. The father's hugging him and kissing him, and the son's going, wait, 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 wait. I've got this speech prepared. I've been working on it for a long time. Father, look, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Like, the, the son can't believe what's happening right now, because if he stopped and realized what was going on, he wouldn't make the same speech that he does. The father knew the son was repentant because the son came back and he had nothing in his hand. There's no question about the repentance. But the son's still going through it, but, but the father doesn't even listen to him. The father instead turns to his servants and he says, hey, get the best robe. Yeah, 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 the, the, the best one. Not the servant's garb that the son expected. Not even everyday wear. No, bring my finest clothes that I've got in my closet. Grab it and bring it and put it on my son. You know, in Revelation chapter 6, verse 11, John says, they were each, this is the tribulation martyrs, they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. That robe of, of honor, that robe of rest, that robe of family. Bring my best robe and give it to my son. Put a ring on his hand, which would have had the family seal on it, saying, hey, you're back. You're part of the family again. Your role in our family, it's back. It's, it's fully established. Here's the family seal. Here's the ring. You're mine. You are my son fully again. And then he says, and get some shoes. Grab my Reeboks. Bring them out. He's got no shoes on his feet. He's been in the pig pen. So he gets the shoes just to meet his, his even basic needs there. And then he says, and go get the fattened calf and kill it because we have to celebrate. Because this, my son, he was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. The fattened calf would have been reserved for a, a feast day or a, a celebration day. And it would have taken hours and hours to prepare this. And the father says, this, this is worth it. But, Verse 25, we find that the father had another son, didn't he? Verse 25, now the older son, he was in the field. And there's a juxtaposition here of the reactions and the responses. The one who was offended responds with love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. But then here's the older brother. Now this older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called to one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, well, your, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. 
but he, the older brother, was angry and refused to go in. But notice this last phrase that I think we often overlook. His father came out and entreated him. See, just like the, the prodigal, the father goes to the older brother as well. And just like the prodigal, the father goes to the older brother as well. And the desire from the father is the same for the older brother as it was with the younger brother. I want you to repent and I want you to come home and I want you to come in and join the celebration. And the older brother refuses because his heart is heart. See, man, some of us in this room are the, the prodigal. Some of us in this room are the older brother. Some of you in the room are the older brother in that you are not coming back to the Father and not repenting from sin because there's a pridefulness about you that says, well, I'm, I'm okay, I don't need to do that. Or you've been in the church, you've been a, a Christian for so long that you think to yourself, well, the, the, the sins that I have, yeah, I get it, it's covered by the cross, but I don't really need to, to specifically repent from anything on that because, I mean, come on, after all, it's whatever. And there's a self-righteousness that takes over. And just like the father went to the older brother, the father has come to you in this parable as well and said, hey, no, you too need to repent and come in and join the celebration. Prodigal, older brother, either one. Point number three this morning is this. Realize your father desires your repentance. God wants your repentance, men. Because in repenting, we are glorifying God by exalting the cross, exalting the work that Jesus has done. Because in repenting, what we are doing is we are saying, we need forgiveness. Man, if, if I gave all of you in the room a, a Tesla, because all of a sudden I'm Oprah, you get a Tesla, you get a Tesla, you get a Tesla, right? And, and, and you took that out and you were like, hey, this is great, I've got a Tesla. And you went and you hooked it up to an 18-wheeler flatbed, and you started pulling, like, bricks with that Tesla. And then you came back and you said, oh, well, the, the Tesla, it doesn't really work anymore, so um, you can have it back. How do you think that made me feel? Like, what, what were you doing? It's not what it's for. No, go, go use it the way it's, what it's intended for, which I don't know what it's intended for because I don't have a Tesla, but go drive it. Drive it fast and don't make any noise while you drive it, right? Go turn your seat cushions into whoopee cushions, which it does with the computer on there. Right? I mean, you're not going to take a Tesla and go try to tow something with it. That's not what it's meant to do. Men, God gave us Jesus not to just be this mascot that we keep in our pocket and pull out on the weekends to worship by giving lip service to him. God gave us Jesus not as a good luck charm to be used when we need him, but then forgotten about when we don't. No, God gave us Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins, to be the atonement for our sins, to be, as John says in 1 John, our advocate before the Father. And just like when you give your kids, grandkids, a, a present, and you see them enjoy it by using it as it was intended to be used, the Father has given us Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins, to be our advocate, or as the writer of Hebrews says, 
to make intercession for us. He says Jesus lives forevermore to make intercession for us. And it delights the Father for you to come in abject repentance to him and to plead the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Because that's why he gave Jesus to begin with for you. It's a joy to the Father to apply the blood of Christ to your sins. Far and above what it is to see, for the Father to see you or to see me to come back with our self-righteousness and say, oh God, I, I sinned for a little while, but here I clean myself up. Are you happy with me now? Look, I did my daily Bible reading for a week. I showed up at church for a week. I upped my giving this last week. I, did this, I signed up to serve over here this week. I stopped cussing. I haven't looked at porn for a month. God, are you happy with me now? Are, you, are we good now? He's going to say, no, those things are all filthy rags still. Because you're trusting in your works. You're not trusting in my son for forgiveness. I gave you my son. What are you doing with my son? Repentance is not coming back with our work and then saying, okay, can I have a little bit of Jesus to make up for what I can't do? No, that's called Mormonism. Repentance is coming back with nothing. No excuse. No justification. No here, God, I brought these, these good works. Are you happy with me now? No, it's, God, I, I, I've got nothing. I'm a wretch. I deserve judgment. I don't deserve forgiveness. But I'm going to plead the blood of Christ because you've given it to me. And when we do that, it brings joy to the Father. Romans 8, 31 through 32, what should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The Father desires our repentance because of the price that he paid in order to secure our repentance. Psalm 51, 17 says the, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh Lord, you will not despise. Prodigal, older brother, both alike, the father desires repentance. Again, I think, men, this is one of the most difficult concepts of God for us to wrap our minds around. We can understand that God is holy and we are not. We can understand the justice of God, the wrath of God, the righteousness of God, we can understand the power of God by walking outside and looking at the heavens. The heavens declare the glories of God. We can understand the eternality of God, though it, 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 we get tired ahead a little bit to think, okay, God was never created. But we can at least entertain those thoughts. But when we are asked to conceive of God at the level of intimacy of a father and us as his children, I think that's where we begin to struggle. But I think passages like Luke 15, 11 through 32 are helpful for us because it, it gives us a picture of what that means. The love that the Father has for you and for me. It's quite amazing. Beyond what we can even imagine right now. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that that's one of the ways that God has chosen to reveal himself in the pages of his word. I'm thankful for a parable like the parable of the prodigal son. I mean, we've talked a lot the last couple of weeks about, hey, you know, you want to know if you're in Christ, what does your life look like? Are you doing the works, right? Are you bearing the fruit? 
that's good and that's right and we need to have that present in our life, but I, I also want to have the, the, the balance here of you understanding the true heart of God for you that we see in the parable of the prodigal son. Let's pray. Father, to say we are thankful for your identity as that father is an understatement. That we can, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, approach you as Abba, Father, that term that was reserved for family and family alone. That you could have just simply stopped by revealing yourself to us as Yahweh, as Lord, as Master, as Elohim, as God, as ruler, as sovereign, as king, as despot even. You did none of those things. But you said, look, I, I am your master. I am your king. I am your Lord. I am your God. I am your ruler. I am the sovereign one. But I'm, I'm, also, I'm also your father. And you are my son. Lord, help us to come to terms with what that means more and more every day. Help us to lean into our identity as your son and know that when we repent, you as our father will love us and embrace us and kiss us and welcome us home and forgive us because of the cross. Thank you, Lord. Amen.